Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, uh, it's, uh, what do you call it? It's Monday morning, I guess, and I want to do bio for this week. Uh, fortunately, uh, Abe Gluck and Gluck Plumbing stepped forward to uh, uh, man up to take over the plate and uh, sponsor this. I'm going to do somebody's yard set. I think it's today, I believe. And that is uh, someone you probably never heard of. And that's Rabbi Yaakov Anatoly. Uh, from the time of the Maimonidean controversies, who lived in the, I guess, early 1200s, late 1100s, early 1200s. Uh, and here we're going to go to a person that's known, then not known, then yes known, then not known, and today not. Uh but it has a lot to do with from politics. So I'll jump right into it. The person we're talking about who lived, I think, from like 1150 to 12, no, nah, 1180 to 1250, you know, that kind of time, uh, was uh, from Provence uh, and came from a very Rambami type family. Uh, these, are, these are the Maimonideans, as they call them. Understand when you have the Maimonidean controversies, these are the Maimonideans, and the shot but that is that they were super into the Rambam who is still alive. I think our hero was born like 1190, actually. So the Rambam died in 1205, you know, that kind of thing. And the Rambam, as you know, was controversial in some ways and other ways not, but he had his chasinim, and in the case of our hero. Uh, let's put it this way. We're talking about Rabbi Yaakov Anatoly, right? Yaakov and Shushan Anatoly, that was his name. So, Rabbi Yaakov Anatoly's grandfather was a dyan in the basin of the Rambam in Egypt. You get what I'm saying? You know, if you look in the Rambam's letters, sometimes it's back and forth, halacha stuff, the other stuff, to Rabbi, the dyan Anatoly. So here's the guy's grandson. So just think what that means. If you were the grandson of somebody... It was on the Rambam's basin. I'll give you an example. Like today, somebody said, oh, my grandfather was on the same basin with, the, I don't know, you know, with the Chaim Presker or something like that. You know, you say, oh, boy. Uh, so these guys knew the Rambam is from. On the other hand, they also knew that the Rambam is very bright. And on the contrary, it's not a chesarin, but it's a plus to have a bright kite. Now, the Rambam could pull off because he knew Kol Kula. That doesn't mean that you can, but nevertheless, the image of the perfect person being a Maimonides is something that our hero obviously grew up with. And he's in Provence in the late 1100s, early 1200s, which is a very interesting and important period in Jewish cultural history because the Rambam's uh, books were mostly in Arabic. Everything he wrote was in Judeo-Arabic, with the exception of the Mishnah Torah. Right? I mean, he, he actually says that. You understand? He actually says that. That uh, everything he did was 
you know, uh, he wrote the Mishnah Torah on purpose, let's put it this way, for the purpose of uh, making it available to people that don't, outside the Arabic type world, right? But he himself, the Rambam, uh, wrote everything else like art scroll, like in, in Arab, Judeo-Arab. Now here we come to one of the most interesting features of Jewish cultural life, including Torah, and one that's super dominant in this day and age, and that's translation. Uh, where would the Dafiomi be without the Art School of Gemara? In fact, to be perfectly honest, a lot of people in learning, where would they be without the Art School of Gemara, if you want to be honest? And forget the Art School of Gemara. Tell me about, you know, uh, uh, all the other things, the Mishnayis, and uh, obviously Jerusalem, and all those other things. You know where I'm going with this. That it's really opened up a world to people. And that's because they made the business. I mean, recently got the Drusha Saran. How many people are going to read the Drusha Saran without the art school to the degree that they read it? Or to say Frachinich or whatever. And even in Israel, you have it into modern Ivrit, you know, like a Steinzel type situation. There's a ton of books like that that are translating from Old Hebrew to Ivrit. Uh, translation is a very powerful and important tool. And it affects. Uh, knowledge and uh, you know the diffusion of certain types of things like Torah literature in ways that a lot of people don't want to admit because if you're very yeshivish all there is to add translation eh, 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 like that uh, and I understand why yeshivish type person has to be like that and I do and it is true that when you read translation you're stuck with the translator's you know words but having said all that this causes tremendous diffusion of certain texts where otherwise it wouldn't have happened, and the hispashtas of all kind of ideas that otherwise people wouldn't be familiar with. Now, in the particular case we're talking about now, we're talking about the uh, late 11th, especially the 1200s. This is a very interesting era in Western history and in Jewish history, Lagabi translations. I'm referring to two types of translations, A and B. One is the translations of Gaisha stuff in the Hebrew, and the other one is Jewish stuff in the Hebrew. Now, as far as the Gaisha stuff in the Hebrew, this is the Haskalah of the Middle Ages. The average guy out there, you ask him, what do you think What do you think of Aristotle's kashas on the Torah or something like that? You know, I never even heard of Aristotle. And he certainly can't read it all, so it doesn't mean anything to him. Because it's in Greek. Suppose somebody translating to a Hebrew. Oh, then maybe... It might lead him to have kashas also. Or alternatively, it may lead him to have terutsim to kashas he already thought up on his own. You understand? Uh, so there's the idea of translating the books of science, as we would call today, although it's a thousand years ago, into Hebrew to make it wider spread among the Jews. This is called the Haskalah Project. This was true in the time of the Middle Ages, and of course it was true in the 19th century when it got very controversial. Uh, because the from world prefers that not only you shouldn't learn, but you shouldn't even be able to access it. You see? Now, today we live in a different time and place because everybody lives in America or in Israel. Everybody in America can read English, so therefore, if you feel like it, I say if. You can access anything. As a matter of fact, you got the internet. And if you live in Israel, all the stuff is out in the rich. You understand? Everything, all the, the Chiloni stuff, all the secular stuff, all the kashas on the Torah is out in the Vrit, if that's what you want. 
I remember years ago, somebody asked me, said, how did the Chazanish have so much medical knowledge, all the rest of it? I said, well, he was living in Palestine and Israel. They translate everything into Hebrew. I don't think the Chazanish could read uh, English or German or stuff like that. I don't believe so. Uh, or the Vilna Gon, but they could read it in Hebrew or in Yiddish. And by this time, you know, one of the one of the aspects of the Zionist enterprise is to translate world literature, especially science, into Ivrit. Once you do that, you've crossed a gigantic uh, gap. You understand? So this was the world of intellectual ferment such as it existed in the time of our hero. Now, specifically, the, let's 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 concentrate on um, the Rambam stuff. Uh, the Rambam lived from uh, what 1138 to 1205, I think it was. So, so no, you know, like that. So the 1100s, basically, the 12th century. Uh, in his time, there were like two sets of Jews out there. Those who lived in the Islamic area and those who lived in the Christian. Those who lived in the, uh, you know, Arab world, as we would call today. And those who lived in what we call Christendom. The kingdoms and the you know uh, territories of Europe, uh, Spain being an exception because Spain was still half Arab. Now, that's the point. So, if I was a Jew living in place in Italy or Germany or even Provence or a place like that or France or Tosas, I don't know Arabic. So, I you have some importance for him, uh, plus and minus, coming out from what we call the golden age of the Jews in Spain. And these are important uh, texts, certainly in terms of religious philosophy, commentaries on Chumash, all the rest of it. Be perfectly honest, even that stuff on Shas, but nobody outside the Arab world could read it. So there developed two attitudes. One is, I don't know and I don't care. That's more what you find among the Ashkenazi Jews. You know, I don't know and I don't care. Uh, but... In the non-Ashkenazi European Jews, especially in southern France and Provence, they actually got interested in these kinds of uh, Jewish texts. I'm talking about from people like Rabbi Yonason Akoin in the back of the Gemara, you know, in Erevin and all that. And they have just an intellectual curiosity. What did Sadiagon write? I heard there's a book called Chavis Alvavis out there. What is it? I heard there's a book called the Kuzari out there. What is it? I heard that somebody wrote a book on, uh, you know, uh, astronomy. Named, his name is Ibn Ezra. What is it? You understand? And especially when the Rambam was alive in the 1100s. So, little by little, his fame spread. Uh, the Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah before he wrote the Marnebuchim. So, uh, the Mishnah Torah he wrote in his 30s. So, uh, uh, the Rambam was born in 1138, so... In the 1160s, late 1160s and early 1170s. Uh, the Mishnah Torah is amazing, as you know. It didn't happen overnight, but little by little, copies spread. What was the world like before the Rambam came out, you know, the Mishnah Torah? Well, it's, 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 it, either you memorize everything in the Vilna Gaon style and you solder it in your mind, or you're out there at sea like most people. And here comes this guy, Maimonides, and he's got a whole book, and the Kol Torah cool, is kind of organized. Even if you pick it apart here and there, like the rabbit, I mean, everybody can see. But generally speaking, he's got the whole thing down. It's amazing. And so when the Mishnah Torah uh, started copy, started spreading to southern France, 1190s, uh, 
So the Talmud Chacham over there was saying, I said, well, what is this guy? And he started corresponding with the Rambam. And we have letters back and forth, Shaos and Shubas, the Rambam, what they call the Chachmi Lunyel, that's the Provencal Jews, the Talmud Chacham over there. And the Rambam held from them. So this is the Rambam in his old age. And so you see, it's a major, uh, you know, stuff I'm talking about today. And the Rambam uh, said that, what do you call it, that? Um, hold on, here it is. And the Rambam uh, told him, he said, oh, this is not the only book I got. I got something, you know, in Arabic. I wrote in Pirish Mishnayis and things like that. And to make a long story short, rich rabbis, great Rishonim in Provence, started to have a desire to find somebody who could translate into good Hebrew the Arabic stuff from the Rambam and others like the Chavis Alvavis, the Sadi, you know, Munis Vadeus, the Kuzri, and so on and so forth. Uh, but they didn't know Arabic. However, what happened was that there was a certain group of Jews that knew Arabic and Hebrew, and they ended up, some of them ended up moving from Spain because in Spain it was half Arab, half Christian, so the Jews grew up knowing Arabic. The way, same way I, for example, grew up knowing English. And uh, this is the famous Ibn Tibbin family that they moved to uh, Provence. And they were like refugees. But they had a schaira that the rich Jews in Provence were willing to pay for, and that is translation capabilities. And Shmuel Ibn Tibbin and the one before me, Hud Ibn Tibbin, they started translating. In other words, people like rich rabbis, rich rabbis, I'll say it again, they were rich and they were abundant, big gadolim, put them on a salary. They said, I'll pay you a salary, and you translate these things into Ivrit. And that's how they turned out, a thousand years ago, all the works that we just described, the Kuzri, the Chosalvavas, books on uh, mathematics and astronomy and science and, I don't know, you know this, that, and the other, and uh, history, you know, like the from the same Kabbalah and, and whatever, and the result was that these Jews, who were not Ashkenazic exactly, the Provencal, you know, now had access to the classics of medieval Jewish literature uh, of the non-Gemar, Gemar, Gemar variety by a significant Rishonim. I would say Yehuda Levi, Sadigon, people like that, uh, Bachim Bekuda, and the Rambam and others are Rishonim. Uh, in things that they wrote in Arabic for their own types of Jews, and now they're spreading to other types of Jews. Eventually it hit the Ashkenazim in northern France, but first it hit the southern France. So it's, it was a time of a very interesting intellectual ferment because um, these Jews had never encountered the philosophical approach, let's say, put it that way, for reading the Torah. They usually, as far as we can tell, didn't raise the questions And when the Torah says this, which part is literal and which part is not literal. Uh, if you ask them, I mean, I think they went by the bike, you know, does God have a hand? A Yodah Gal shares in Mitzrayim? No. But does uh, God uh, get angry? Yeah, why not? You know? Notice they, they, they didn't, it wasn't part of their culture to raise these kind of issues and to think, when you break the world, came the Shemaim versus arts. You know, what's the Shemaim? The sky, all right, whatever. You know, like, what's wrong with that? As opposed to saying, no, it's not the sky, it's the metaphysical and so forth. And so it was really new to them and they liked it by and large. Most of them. And the result was, you start to have a real intellectual ferment. It didn't take away from Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. Because I'm talking, like I said before, 
uh, you know, the Chachmi Lunyel and people in yeshivas and things of that nature. So just they considered it, um, what shall I say, a, a, a positive addition to their Talmudic studies. Okay? And and basically it's the idea of Chacham Musar. You know, you want to understand the religion better, the Chumash better, and things of that nature. And so this is what um, was going on. Now, it did provoke um, a reaction from the right wing at that time. Shlomo Minahar and people who said, this, I don't care who wrote it, even the Rambam, some of the stuff is treif. And Rishmuel uh, Ibn you know, he was popular in some areas and unpopular with the right wingers in other areas. Um, and most significantly, he he translated the the, the Mordechai. Now, what does it all have to do with our hero? Well, our hero grew up exactly in this environment. He was born around 1190, 1195, whatever. And all this stuff is happening when he's young. Uh, he is, by definition, as they say before, a Maimonidean because his great his grandfather, I think, or great grandfather, knew the Rambam and learned with him and was on his base and all the rest of it. Uh, his Natiya, therefore, was in that kind of direction. From a young age, he studied, you know, Arabic and this other stuff in addition to regular Lamudi Kodesh. So he's already growing up in Provence with a with a more broad education, what we would today call Torah, Mada, Torah, Derek Heretz, that kind of thing. Uh, he was no dumbbell, but, you know, he wasn't a uh, yeshivish, uh, you know, right-wing person, which is only Gamar, 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 and, and all the rest is a waste of time. And don't ask any questions about what the Parsha means or what the Medrash means or anything like this. Just take it, you know, however you take it. That's not who he was. And make a long story short, he became the son-in-law of Shmuel Ibn Tibbin. So that tells you that he's from that Machna. Now, this hero, Yaakov Anatoly, he uh, grew up and he, had, he got married and he had to make a living. Well, he went into the family business. What's the family with the translation? In this case, the translations would be, he started out in life translating the Geisha stuff into Hebrew. So this is already something different. You're not translating the Rambam or the Kuzri. You're translating the English books, if I can use that terminology. Of course, it's not in England. We're talking a thousand years ago. Uh, you're talking about the, the Greek philosophical classics, actually, and the Arab Arab commentaries on the Greek philosophical classics into Hebrew, okay? Which really means your mamsha maskil. Although I, in the Middle Ages, maskil does not mean somebody's Mechal Shabbos, and it doesn't mean somebody doesn't believe in the term Sinai. And so we call it from Moscow, if you want to call it that. But on the other hand, he's churning out these uh, significant translations in the Hebrew of the major works of, uh, of Aristotle, like the Organon, and the famous classic Arab Mephorshim, uh which once upon a time were, were household words, you know, uh, was it an Al-Farabi and uh, Al-Ghazali, and uh, these names don't mean anything to anybody today. And, you know, and things of this nature, he, he translated Ptolemy's Almagest, which is the work of astronomy, and some of the Arab Mephorshim on that. Now, what's he doing? He's translating the Hebrew. So who is he translating for? Translating for these richy rich uh, I'll say it again, who want to know, uh, you know, uh, not to knock out the learning, because they were very from, uh, some of these were shown him, 
I'll say again, like Rabbi Yonason Cohen, Luniel, and some of the other Chachme Luniel, and the Chachme, um, uh, what is that, Nimes, and places like that. These are, you know, people who uh, who actually wrote Mepharshim on the Gemara. But they're also interested in the other side. Now, um, already, if you're this type of person, and you're translating, and you're, that means you got to know Aristotle and all the other stuff very well. That means you have a very good secular education, whatever that meant in the uh, 1200s. And therefore, what it means is you're into metaphysics as a science, the way Aristotle was. And you even know the, um, let's put it this way, those Arab Mepharshim on Aristotle, who the Rambam in the Murnavuchim praises very highly and says you have to know. So those in the Murnavuchim, among other things, the Rambam says everybody should read this book and this book and that one. And this guy's Pirish is a good one and that guy's Pirish is a bad one. You know, the Rambam was like that because he knew all of Arabic philosophy at his time. But in other words, but he said, he said some parts of philosophy are sound intellectually and some parts are not. And it had nothing to do with being from necessarily, you see? So it's an entire new department of knowledge. And this is the real Haskalah because this enables the Shiva guy, so to speak, if he wishes to, to access the whole world that's out there of, of science and knowledge in the Hebrew language, which otherwise would, he simply would be cut off from. Uh, this is a, a, like a major work. Let me put it this way. The Vilna Gona, you know, they read these translations. Uh, that's how they knew whatever science they knew throughout the... Most of the time, your big Rabbonim and all the rest of it down the ages didn't know anything except Hebrew and Yiddish and that sort of business. And... Um, you know, Aramaic and whatever. And so if they ever read books on math and science and all that kind of stuff, uh, it was these translations that were published by people like our hero and the others. Now, as I said, if he's growing up from 1190 to 1250 approximately, I forget the exact years, but it's that, that's what it is, 1190 1250. So, uh, you know, maybe it's 1194, 1256, whatever. So this is in the first round of the Maimonidean controversies because... This is when some people took this uh, secular stuff and pushed it too far to the left, which provoked an extreme counter-reaction from the hard right. And this is one of the first Maimonidean controversies when things mamish got out of hand and the Frumis, you know, went over the top and they brought in the Catholic Church and they had some of these books, including the Murnabuchim and other parts of the Mishnah Torah, burned at the in the street by the Catholic Church as heresy, um, which was a lousy thing to do because you don't bring the garments and something like that. And as I think many people know, a dozen years later or so, it led to the church saying, oh, it's a good idea to burn Jewish books. Let's burn all the Gemaras. And they did in France, and that wiped out Tosus. That was the end of that. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot. And it got even worse. If you want the details, you go, I did a, a series. It's online in the YouTube on the Maimonidean controversies last summer, I have all the uh, ugly details. Uh, so that's exactly when our hero was living. That's in the 1230s. It got so bad that the Ramban, who was a very from guy and a right winger, but the Ramban knew all the stuff that we're talking about. He read all these books. That's who the Ramban is. He read all the books of philosophy. Uh, probably even in the Gaishan language, but the Ramban certainly read the ones that are translated in the Hebrew languages and the Mordevichim and all the rest of it. 
he disagrees with them, and he says so, but there's a difference between disagreeing with somebody, even strenuously, and trying to kill them or burn their books and stuff like that, or declaring them treif. Uh And that's why the Ramban, uh, who, by the way, this led the Ramban to push for Kabbalah as opposed to philosophy, but that's something else, and we're not going to go into that. Ramban, to write this famous letter to the to the rabbis in France, which you can get in Chevelle's, uh, you know, transaction online, and he said, you know, you guys are going overboard. And, you know, we can't destroy the Jewish community and the unity with this uh, from stuff. Um, and he really lets them have it, even though the Ramban himself, Bashita, held like the right-wingers. So it was a very complex period. And our hero uh, was, you know, obviously on the Ibn Tibbin side, and he started, and, and let's put it this way, he was a from guy, but I don't get the impression that, you know, he was a big learner in the Gemara and all the rest of it. Maybe I'm wrong, but, th- you know, that's how it seems. Uh, these guys in general would be what he called the Maskim of the Middle Ages, so they'd be more in Tanakh, Ivrit. I'm sure they knew, you know, they, I mean, they knew how to learn. And these guys, I would imagine, this is my Baich uh, feeling, they knew Mishnahis and stuff like that very well. Uh, remember, Tosus was, was contemporary of them, was being written at that time. So what does it mean to learn without the Tosophistic approach? You, you, do you see what I'm saying? It's 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 a different learning than what you imagine today. He's always oh, a guy know how to learn. They lived at the time of Rabbeinu Tom, <laughs> you understand? Or he's born right afterwards of the Re. And, uh, you know, the learning as, as it came to gel into the form that we're familiar with today didn't exist. Uh, or was just in the process of gestation. Now, here's the thing. His translations were considered very good. Me, myself, and I, I never read his translation on Aristotle's Organon. I find it boring, but, you know, because I'm a historian, not a philosopher, it's, it's not something that turns me on. But at that time, it really turned people on. And Al-Farabi, my goodness, and Averroes, Ibn Rushd, and so forth. But the reputation got out there. And as I said before, how you make a living, richy rich Jews of this a certain type will give you a salary to do, you know, on a contract basis to, to turn out translations. So I don't know how, but the word got out there that you have a guy who's very good in translating. He knows Arabic and Greek and that kind of stuff. And um, it got out to the Goyim and he got an invitation by the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, one of the most remarkable people of the Middle Ages, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, uh, to come and, 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 and join his court. And he'll give him a salary. And he should just sit there and be Isaac in translations and, and intellectuality. It's like we would say today, it's almost like getting a, a guaranteed income and join like a think tank. It's most unusual. And he took it. Why not? Well, the reason not is you're moving from Southern France, where you at least you have a big Yiddishkeit, even though the communities were small, but they had some main big Jewish intellectuals. You're moving to Naples. Why would the Holy Roman Emperor move to be in Naples, which is South Italy? Frederick II was a weird guy. He was like Charles V in that he inherited a lot of Medinas from his father and a lot of other Medinas from his mother. He's a very... I'm not going to go into the whole... If you're at all interested in what I'm saying, just look up the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Don't confuse him with Frederick the Great in Prussia. And, um, and he ruled vast territories. He was always in a big machlekes with the Pope. 
He was only big machlokes with a lot of the nobles, and he had an up and down career. But he was very intellectual, and he invited all kind of thinkers to his court. And he himself was religiously very skeptical. Like I don't know if he really believed in God. Remember, he's a Catholic. I don't think he believed in all that kind of stuff. He said Moses, um, you know, and and Mohammed and Jesus, they're all fakers, something like that. That's, that's he's supposed to have said that famously. But anyway, it's a very interesting um, atmosphere. And that's where our hero spent the rest of his life. With, in other words, that was his salary. So basically, he worked on a think tank. There's nobody in the time of Rishonim I know like this. They paid by Gaisha King just to sit, sit and learn and churn out stuff. Here, our hero, who remained in Shomer Shabbos and remained who it is, you know, he met a whole world of, of Gaisha intellectuals. Uh... It's very famous. They like to write about the fact that he knew he was friends with Michael Scotus, you know, who was a Scotsman who wasn't your typical Scotsman. It was a priest, and he, he became the number one uh, public intellectual of the 13th century. So you have a Jewish scholar with a Geisha scholar. They used to love this stuff in the 19th century, you know, um, to talk about how the Jews interact with the others. But it is true, and he knew the emperor. And it's going to sound funny. Frederick II was fighting wars. By the way, he captured Jerusalem, among other things, and fighting the Pope and having civil wars and winning and losing up and down. And, and in between, he liked to talk and learning. That turned him on. He liked to talk to intellectuals, and he talked to our hero. And you'll see that it's most unusual, unique, that our hero, when he publishes a safer in the Parish of the Week, he often quotes the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II if he's got a good Vitor, you know, a good, a, a good Vort. Because you can't be around people who are not Jewish, who are brilliant, and say, oh, they're dummies, they're going, the other. And what if you meet somebody who's not Jewish, and you and, and he has a, 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 a touch on the Avram and Sarah story, or the Moshe Rabbeinu and Yisro story, or something like that, or or even a reason for Tommy Amitzvahs. What if he says, oh, yes, you know, it's actually a good fart. So what do you say? He says, well, he's not Jewish, he's not hick with her, you know. Now, in Ekonomi, many will do that. But others, like our hero, say, listen, if it's a good vart, it's a good vart. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you should love the atmosphere where it comes from. So these are all very controversial. Now, being the type of person he was, the, the type of people that would hang around him and be friends with him, be the type of people who like his mahalach. When would it express itself in Jewish terms? So the answer is, uh, as, as a, like a pulpit rabbi today, when you give sermons. In the Middle Ages, they didn't typically give sermons in, in davening. Uh, that's not how they operated usually in the Middle Ages. Yes, but there are certain occasions, like Shabbos Agarol and Shabbos Shuvah, of course, but other times also, in which you did give sermons. So when would, when would that be? So um, simchas, weddings, bar mitzvahs, you know, that sort of thing. And so he became, like we would say today, uh, a kind of, uh, how should I put it? I was going to say a rabbi friend, you know, a speaker in demand uh, in these small communities for the modern Orthodox, let's say, that might not be the right term, to give an explanation of the Parsha Zashavua or a story from the Tanakh uh, in rationalistic, modern, allegorical terms that'll, uh, you know, make it relevant to the audience at hand. And, they, and he got very popular at this. 
Uh, now, the from, some liked it, some didn't like it, but uh, what he's doing is really what every rabbi in the world does, myself included, which is you take something in the parsha, you try to make it relevant to the audience at hand. But this was very controversial during the time he lived. But not later. So what do I mean? Suppose I told you, and this would be a typical mahalach of somebody like this. You know, we just had a parsha. I'm just thinking out loud. We just had parsha Lech Lecha, and Avram talks to the king of Sodom, and the king says, and Avram said, no way. And so forth and so on. That's a story. What if I were to tell you like this? You know what the real meaning is? Or the higher meaning, the significance for us? Rabosai, the Kimelk's Dome, that's America today. Because this country's mom's like Stoma and Amora. But the gays and this and, that and the other, it's a Sodom and Amora. And the, the culture is very powerful. It's like a mobble in the time of Noah. And uh, the Melch's Dome says to Avram, in other words, it's like, it's like the Western culture says to Abraham, to the Jew, Give me your children, send them to college, and but they'll make a lot of money. They'll become doctors and lawyers and this and that and the other. And so it's a deal with the devil, deal with the king of Sodom. You send your children to get an excellent secular education. They come, they grow up and they become economically prosperous, but they belong to the king of Sodom. You get uh, And of course, sooner or later, the children and grandchildren are not Jewish anymore. Uh, and Avram is smart enough to cop that, and I'm saying, there's no way, I'm going to have nothing to do with you. You see? Now, wait a minute. That's a good speech. What did somebody say? He goes, ooh, that's a very good, I never thought of that before. That's a, that's a good speech. I've taken the story of Abraham and, and Sodom, which was 3,500 years ago or more, and I've made it relevant to, to America, let's say, for example, in the year 2022. Uh, now, why do people say today's a good speech? Because they don't say the rabbi, let's say it was me. They don't say rabbi Katz. Well, um, he's saying Avram never lived and Sodom never lived. And the whole story is just a mushal. He's saying there could be a story of Avram and Samel Sodom. Okay, in Echanami, the Pajam shot is a Pajam shot. And that's very important too. But here's an angle that I just called your attention to in the modern times in the Western culture in which we live, in which it's possible if you, if you, uh, if you join the modern culture to uh, become very prosperous, but the dangers are you end up falling, you know, into the hands of this uh, religiously and culturally into the hands of Saddam. That's a plausible argument. Most people would say it's an intelligent critique. Uh, that's plausible. And what will be the result? People say, I guess, okay, so he, he put a good spin on it. He put a good angle. People come and say, oh, I heard a good speech today in Shul. They don't see it as rejection of the facticity of the story of Avram and Saddam. They think it as, as a supplement to it. Because the Torah said, no, shot, remis, drash, showed. And other things as well. She even put him the Torah. As long as you don't deny that the thing happened, there's nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, it's good to add different layers of meaning to it. If it will hit home, it'll be a zinger and hit with your audience. Because you've taken the Parsha and you made it something... It's not simply, you know, and go weiter, but you made it that it's alive. That's what he did. Um, but on the other hand, at this time I'm talking about, there were others who were contemporaries of his, especially in Provence. 
who seem to have uh, gone farther and basically said like this. You know, the story of Abraham and, and, and Sodom is a mushal ba'alma. No, it's never happened. To be perfectly honest, Avram never happened. To be perfectly honest, Avram and Sarah never happened. It's just a mushal for uh, uh, Homer and Surah. To be perfectly honest, there never was a flood and a Noah. It's just a mushal for, you know, hiding from floods, you know, of, uh, of, of you know, different temptations, whatever. I don't know. Uh, there never was an Onam and a Chav and a Nachash. There never was a Moshe Rabbeinu. Actually, there never was Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. All the 12 uh, you know, sons of Avram, and that's another word for the 12 constellations out there, as telling you what's in astrology. See, there were people who wrote like that. Now, not our hero, but there were people who wrote like that. And they seem, as, you know, it's it's a very complicated subject, but they they certainly seem to have been um, people who pushed the envelope too far. Because it is possible if somebody's into um, philosophical readings, and if they're not from to a certain degree, they could have a very skeptical attitude to what the whole story of Komish is. And when you say, it's not really true. See I, how I use the word, it's not really true. But it has an allegorical meaning. And once you rob it of facticity, you say historic, it's not a history book anymore. No, it's not that the Torah is only a history book. It could be more than that. But you tell me it's not even a history book. Uh, then you're dealing already with, like, Fira. Uh, this is what was raging during the lifetime in the 1200s, especially in southern France and in, uh, and in Ashkaz and in um, northern Spain and some other places. And this is what they call the Maimonidean controversies. Now, our hero gave speeches along these lines, but it's pretty clear to me and to many others that he's not saying Avram didn't happen, but he was accused by the right wing of saying that. Or that Moshe didn't happen. Or that, you know, T.S. Mitzrayim didn't happen. It's just a muscle for this. That's not what he's doing at all. You know, he's doing what I just told you before. Oh, you see some Mitzrayim, my friends? Anybody who's a drug addict has a hard time and he has to have a Yitzhiz Mitzrayim. He needs ten makas to uh, show him. You know, you know you, there's homiletics. You understand? It's drush. doesn't take away from the story itself. doesn't say it didn't happen. But on the other hand, somebody can be very uncomfortable. Say, I don't like this whole uh, discourse. And so the result is that um, he says himself in the introduction to the book he composed. He says, some of my friends told me I, should, I better stop giving speeches. But he didn't. And... As I said before, he spent the rest of his life with a good salary under the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II at the imperial court in Naples uh, because he was also king of Sicily, Frederick, and so forth and so on. And uh, as I said, now, it's not living in a yeshivish community. It's living actually in a geisha community. So imagine a guy who was... uh, I don't know how, it, how to give a muscle today because American universities today do have Jewish uh, groups there and they have Chabad and all this other kind of Hillel. Uh, but imagine somebody was like in a think tank type situation and he's the only from Jew. As far as I'm aware, there actually was another from Jew we know from history who was at the court. But it must have been most unusual because the the Gaisha people who are paying the salary aren't interested in Purushim and Shas. They don't give a darn for the Talmud. Probably didn't even know the Talmud existed to tell you the truth at that time. Uh, but they are interested in the Bible because that they knew, and they're interested in the Old Testament, and they're interested in science and philosophy as this term was understood 
And if you're the Emperor Frederick II, you're even interested in the interplay between science and philosophy. So in other words, they had conversations. They said, how do you as a Jew understand this miracle? You know, you're an intelligent guy. You know, science is science. How do you understand it could be a miracle? And he gave answers. Uh, and uh, the result is that he had a most unusual life and career. He put together... So, so in other words, this is not a Rosh Hashiva. It's a Darshan. But it's a Darshan of an unusual variety. But I would say he actually was the beginning, although he didn't realize it, of a long line of Darshanas, which goes down till today, in which you take the Parsha of the week or some, or some other biblical thing, but usually it's the Parsha of Shavuah, and you give it a spin to make it Nogeya to affect the people who are listening. So it's not... It, it, right now, for many people today, the Yeshivasha Mahalach is the is the popular one. Uh, so somebody can give you a pilpul. I'm serious about this, you know, on the parsha of the week, and you say, you know, how could Avram feed the three uh, uh, angels of Basavacholov? Uh, and you know, you can give a whole mahalach, you know. Well, maybe, maybe it was Bas, but it wasn't cooked, you know. You you know you you can go that discourse, and um, and people will like it. Once upon a time, they wanted a different discourse. And uh, so, for example, our hero, when it comes to Parshas Vayera, it's more about, you know, Lamana Sheritzav is one of his base of Hashem, you know, like like Hashem says to concerning Avram, and then what's the Derek Hashem, and what does it mean? Has one properly educated children? And, you know, that was the uh, discourse that they were interested in that time. He put all of his drushes together in a book that he called Malmad HaTalmidim. It's often mistranslated, uh, miswritten, like Malamid HaTalmidim, but it's Malmad HaTalmidim. A Malmad is a goad, G-O-A-D, which is what you hit on an ox to make it go in a certain derech, correct? An ox goad. And uh, he has a whole elaborate um, introduction to the book in which he's quoting from, you know, the Gemara, uh, from, uh, what is it? Kohelis, Dirichachom Kedarbanos, Kamasmos, Netun Baliasupos, Nitnumiro Echol. And it's actually quite a, a from um, introduction with certain liberal spins. Uh, and he says over there, the, these are speeches I gave for the Parsha of the Week. Uh, now that means it's written in the, in the, 11, in the 1200s. There was no printing press at that time, but people just make copies. I would say offhand, sitting here, is probably the first of the Parsha, Parsha Shavua books. As far as I can think. I'm not talking about a commentary like Rashi. I'm talking about, you know, like like sermons for the Parsha of the Week. In a certain Mahalik, in this rationalistic 13th century Maimonidean vein. Uh, in which you're looking for things to be symbols of and uh, and 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 uh, you know the, the allegorical meaning, not that it denies the facticity of it. I want to come back and say it again, again, again. Uh, and what's interesting is, so Mal Meditam, you know, I have, I just uh, pulled out to see myself. How does the Chidah deal with this? I happen to have a uh, Chidah, a Sefer Gedolam set with Nikudos. You know me, and sure enough, they write Sefer Hamalamid. Because just because you have the kudos doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. It's a not it's Malmad Hatalmidim. It's the goad. And his whole reach is, you know, Kedarbonos. A Darbon is also a goad. So uh 
And the idea is to to push the ox, which is you, the reader, the dummy out there. You're the hamunam in the right derech, because the ox himself doesn't know where to go, but you should you know how to go. And he gives a very interesting social commentary in his time to try to defend the book. And he goes to a whole arichus to say that, you know, um, uh, first of all, the oilam is taka goilam, most of them. Uh, and he means even the frummies, because um, they're very narrow-minded. And uh, as he puts, uh, 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 let me see if I can find an English praise on this. This is written up by uh, by that guy in, in studies and introduction preaching, but very in a very boring way. But Tarachek has a good one here in the uh, Faith versus Reason, which is his is the rendering of the Maimonidean controversy here. The Mama Tamidim indicted the firm for their shallow acquaintance with Tanakh. Well, that's true. What they read superficially, as children do, all they do is read Shnai Mikarek Targum. Well, that's true for many people. But Pshat was not to read Shnai Mikarek Targum, he says, but to learn it with the, tar- with, with the Targum. Every Shabbos and Yontav is supposed to be an occasion for studying the Ian, the Parsha of the week, to understand its meaning, but everybody just rushes through the Kriyas Torah as if they were eager to finish an unpleasant task, okay? And, you know, that's not how you should read the Look at the Chumash, the Parsha of the Week. Uh, a delicious food should be eaten slowly and appreciatively and not swallowed at once. That's a good word, by the way, right? You know, you go through the Parsha. Uh, who is Ma'ayin in the Parsha? Uh, I am. That's why I do podcasts. But people listening, and I do, do, do it the easy way. And so one should linger and ponder over the words of the Parsha of the Week. Instead, he says, a thousand years ago, it seems to me the main object of the Hamonam on Shabbos and Yantub is to fill their stomachs. Uh, and he goes on to say, and remember, it's, it's it, by the way, this is all online. You can find this book, Sefer Malmala Tamino, Hebrew books. He says that we're now in fulfillment of the curse of Yeshayahu, where it says, because everybody was mitzvahs uh, anoshim lumada, so therefore, what's the expression? Uh, God will will, will uh, uh, right for of the chacham chacham binas nevam nistatar, and everybody just do mitzvah anoshim lumada. I mean, he there is a, there is something to that, you know. Uh, he said when it comes to blowing shofar, nobody thinks about the meaning of the shofar. Instead, they talk about what color was the chauffeur? What what kind of a job did the Baltokea do? You know, did he screw up on the on the tequillas? I mean, that's not what you're supposed to be thinking about, right? Uh, when they get uh, Talos and Tzitzis, uh, uh, instead of thinking what you know, they're talking about you know, did you get a, a good Talos or did the Tzitzis come out looking good? All the rest of it, uh, you know, uh, davening is a disgrace because remember he was at the imperial court. He says if I ever approached the emperor the way people approached the Bonishlam and Davening with my mind elsewhere, I'd be a dead man, you know, <laughs> right? And Tanakh, in other words, Nach, forget it, nobody knows about it. And Suvim, like Kohelis and Mishle, because he's really into Shlomach, forget about it. Well, there's nothing false about what he's saying over here, you understand? There's nothing false what he's saying. And so the result is that he was like a, uh, I guess, a critic of the typical from uh, culture of his time in terms of its weaknesses. Now, here's the thing. He put this together and put it out there. 
Notice he composed a book on Parshas Shabua, which you understand is already like very useful it, since the range of Parsha. What this week is Vayera. Man, maybe I'm a rabbi somewhere or something like that. And I need a Dvar Torah, or uh, or or better yet, not a Dvar Torah, a very thoughtful kind of analysis from a certain angle of the of Parsha Vayera. And next week Chayisara, and next week Toldus, and all the rest of it. So the book sold like hotcakes. What do I mean when I say a book sold like hotcakes? In the Middle Ages. Books didn't sell. You made copies. You understand? People physically copied them out, but people pay people to copy them out. Uh, what's it? However, since he lived in the twelve hundreds and he died in the middle of the Maimonidean controversies, and they actually got even bigger the controversies in the twelve nineties, which is about forty years after he died. So, uh, because then you really had some people that seemed to push things too far to the left and denied the facticity of the biblical stories, and instead of saying it's all one big mashal. Uh, so, among the from, among the right-wingers, he got a bad reputation. It's his most famous in the Minchas Kanoas because in the 1290s, late 1290s, uh, one from me, Rabbi Abamari Yaki of Luniel, uh, that's Yaki, is Yerich and the Moon, is Luniel, you know, Francis Laloon. And it's very famous that he started writing a whole letter campaign to mainly convince the Rajba, who was the God of Ador, that he should come out and ask her all the all Limurichol, let's put it this way. And the Rajba didn't want to do it. He wanted to, and he didn't want to do it. That's the whole Pasha by itself. And like I say, that if you want to get the details from me, you go on YouTube and you'll see it in the Maimonian controversies. It's a whole long, very interesting Pasha. Uh, and the Rajba was well aware. I mean, let me put it this way. Rajah was God of Lador, and he was a Posik, but that means that he had to deal with the whole community. Therefore, he's not going to come and Aser Limunichol any any more than somebody today who is a rabbi of a very large community of all kind of families could come out and say, I Aser, everybody go to college. You know, right off the bat, half the show not going to listen to you. You understand? So, I mean, no, this is not possible to listen to you. So you got to be very That's a whole parsha by itself. But the Rajva said in his private letters, these were personal letters the Rasha wrote to people, but this guy Abmariyaki collected them somehow and published them. <laughs> right? So now we know what people really think behind the scenes. And he hated this Sefer Maimon Atalmidim. He said, that guy's a Melech Zokin Uxil. Now, what did he mean when he said Melech Zokin Uxil, which is a pusig in, 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 um, in what he called Shlomo Melech? Uh, and he's in, in uh, you know, in Mishlech. So he says uh, he was a melch because everybody loves this sefer, and they quote it all the time, and they read say varts over at weddings and at family simchas and in Shabbos and all the rest of it. And he considers the guy to be treif, so he considered our hero to be treif. But others wrote to the Rajman again. It's all in the, in in, in Minchas Knos. They say, "Why do you consider him to be treif?" The Ramban liked the sefer. You know, he's not less religious than you. And other famous rabbis did. And so you see, even at this particular period, it was controversial where some gedolim were fans of the Malmud HaTalmidim Sefer, and some gedolim were opposed to it. Uh, That's the interesting part. To understand the opposition, you have to understand that it was at that very specific time and place where the controversies over Limud Echol and too much philosophy in the reading of the Chumash to the point where you don't believe the Chumash anymore seems to have been the, the hot-button issue 
And that's what drove people like the Rajput crazy. And he said it's too popular of a work. And it and it and it sounds like like he never goes into in his book into the facticity of it, the way Rashi does or something. He's always giving the philosophical spin. It sounds like that's all there is there. That it wasn't fair. And like I say, they wrote to me, so Rambansa it's okay. And quotes from it. And others say it's okay. But this made the Malmedatami like very controversial. Now here's the thing. I know this and you know this now. But a lot of people didn't you know once the my modern controversy blew over, it it, it, it blew apart in the in the year thirteen oh five or thirteen oh six when the Ram Rajva issued his Takana and uh forbidding uh in certain contexts. Uh, in certain contexts, and then it, there was a, uh, an opposition against it, and then the whole thing came because the Goyim kicked all the Jews out of Provence, there was no gay anymore. That's what happened. So, meanwhile, copies of this book were made and circulated from place to place. And it always had a popularity. And you find later Rishonim, like the Kolbo and the others, and the Abu Durham and people like that, quoting from the Sefer Ma'am because they liked a certain part he said, you know, he'll always give you the Tommy Amitzvos, you see? And it wasn't a thing like, oh, as soon as you say the Tommy Amitzvos, you're killing the Mitzvah, which is the approach of the Rajvah, because that's what happened in his time in many places in northern Spain and southern, in, in southern France. When somebody came up with a reason for a Mitzvah, then they stopped keeping the Mitzvah, because the Mitzvah is merely a means to an end, so why do I have to keep the Mitzvah? That's not how people took it later on. And even though it's true, that he quotes sometimes from Goyim, from Michael Scott, uh, Michael of Scotland, for example, famous philosopher, from the Emperor Frederick II. I remember the Frederick II said, how'd it go? They bring this down always when they write about it, that um, how come the Carbonus are from uh, domesticated animals, not from undomesticated animals? If I remember correctly, he said, like, it's more of a sacrifice from an animal that you yourself had to raise. You know, if there be a carbon to bring from a lion, so, you know, I didn't raise a lion, I just catch it and then shaft it. But if, you, if it's my cow or something like that, you know, then then I had to care for it and therefore it's more of a sacrifice for me. I think I think that's how it went. But, you know, who quotes a Geisha king in a Torah work? Well, the answer is the Malman Atalminim and others. And he quotes Rashi and Ramban, and, and um, I mean, he does. He quotes uh, Rashi and Ben Ezra and, um, and the Rambam. He's a big fan of the Rambam, as you can imagine. Uh, he quotes all the time from the Murder of and from the Mishnah Torah. But, you know, he's also got Plato and Aristotle and Averroes and the others in there as well. But in a way, that's, you know, Alder HaMusser, you know, if they have a good Musser for it. So it's, it's a certain selectivity. Now, here's the thing. Uh, this safer spread, and therefore it was always uh, around and copied and recopied and recopied by Maskilim. Now, I don't mean Maskilim the way you think. I mean Maskilim, mean famous Gedolim and Rabbonim and others like that, who liked this particular approach, which is, you know, the philosophical, allegorical, uh, Tommy Amitzis type of approach. Obviously, I'm talking about from people, and they didn't do this in a way that was that was taking away, as I said before, from the facticity of it, from the reality of it. But it's a, it's like a drash, you know. It's a it's a certain mahalach. 
and therefore you find from time to time the you know the 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 Talminu is back and forth, uh, especially among rabbonim, because you need material for sermons. But on the other hand, it seems to be as best as I can tell that since the Rajva had kind of like dissed it, so they never published it. Instead, what happened is in the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, and into the 1800s, all the big rabbis like had manuscript copies. Now you'd pay somebody to write calligraphically like your own private book. And so there were many copies all over the place, but never in a published form. So perhaps it might reflect the fact that the Rabbanim themselves were like 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 Anatoly himself, which is, you know, the Oilam is a Goylem, so we, the Rabbanim, will be able to read it in, in such a way and give it over, there won't be anything controversial. But, uh, you know, someone else reads it, might get the wrong idea. I, that's a guess on my part. All I know is that um, in the middle of the 1800s, in Galicia, uh, a guy who had a copy sold it to Mekitsim Redom, you know, the, the Society for Publishing uh, Old Rishonim. Uh, the guy who had, I think, was the son of Ephraim uh, Zamer Margolius. I sent him, it's in the, it's the beginning of the book. So I want you to understand, the famous late great Mata Fryim, you know, Shara Fryim, he had a copy, which was, as I said before, not a printed copy, there wasn't anything printed, but he had a copy in nice, he was rich, you know, so he had a lot of swarm. So he had his own personal copy, and obviously he used it whenever he used it. When he died, so his son or grandson, I forget which one, said, you know, I'll, I'll sell it, if somebody wants to publish it and they weren't sure, you know, um, because they heard it is a mom and a tummy. It was a from Yaakov and Atoli. He, this one says good. This one's not as good. So they got a, uh, a thing from Shlomo Kluger who publishes a, a Michta Bracha, I guess you'd say in the beginning. And that made it kosher. And they found another copy to compare with from another rabbi in Germany. And they published it in 1866. Uh, which means the middle of the 19th century. And then it would have an appeal to who? I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure. Because the old style of philosophical allegoristic interpretation was already not so hotsy-totsy in the, in the uh, 19th century. Although, in, in some respects, it was. And I'm only mentioning this because a lot of rabbis had this. Uh, but just they didn't talk about it. It's not trafe as they said before, but they didn't talk about it. <laughs> you see, so it makes it very interesting, safer. And I would even go so far as to say, oh, hold on for a second, okay, let me. Uh, I would say that uh, this safer has two interesting features about it. One is, in my opinion, it was very influential on. In on all the other Drush Tvarim that came down the ages, because it's like one of the first books out there that goes in Parsha Shavua. And the whole literature of Parsha Shavua, especially in the more analytical side, not just the Dvar Torah, um, goes back to the Malmada Talmidim, whether they said it or not. Second of all, Hakal Trichin Mazal Filo they say, that we all know that. Um, a lot depends on time and place and, and circumstances. 
I think that because the book was published in the middle of the 1800s by from Muskil, and that's really what it was, the Mekitzer Nerdama Society, which had big rabbonim on it, among others, but it was like a sort of a Muskilic kind of enterprise, Wissenschaftus Judentums. Uh, this, it, it made a certain bad thing, I'll tell you why. Because in the 19th century, which we're talking about, the 1800s, uh, you had the uh, great historians uh, who wrote the Jewish the books of Jewish history, most of which were not from, and people like Gretz and uh, Geiger and others. These are people who started reforming conservative Judaism. And they have a tendency always to be very tendentious and try to discover, if they can, earlier reform rabbis, earlier conservative rabbis. You know, see this guy who lived long ago? He really held like us. He was just afraid to say it, or that one. So basically, if you would ask a reform historian of the 19th century, he said, the Rambam really was a reform rabbi, he just didn't want to say it. You know, that kind of approach, which is simply not true. It had to do with the fact that they're looking to find legitimacy and ground themselves in, the, in, in sources in the Jewish past if there weren't any, you invent them. So one of the people would be the, our hero, the Malmed HaTalmidim. After all, the Raj would say he's not from, also, you see, he's not from. So we had a guy who wasn't from uh, 900 years ago. So we didn't start this, he started it. Uh, now, it wasn't true, as I just pointed out today. Um, but this is something that Gretz, in his famous 11-volume history of the Jews, put out that, the, you know, that the that the uh, uh, philosophical approach to the Parsha of the Week reflects the fact they didn't really believe in the story. Uh, I think that's hurt the sale of the Sefer. And uh, to my knowledge, it's never been reprinted. And uh, although it's out there, and now it's on Hebrew books, if you want to see it, and there's nothing trifling it at all, uh, which is the interesting thing. And that's why you have this funny history of reception of it, in which there are a lot of Frum's Farm that quote from it, a lot, and a lot of great rabbis that quote from it a lot, and they obviously liked it. But on the other hand, they didn't make a big deal, a big shmeal out of it. Uh, the When I did the, uh, what's it called, the uh, uh, Arama, you know, uh, in, in a century later, the Akedis Yitzhak. So I said, you know, the Akedis Yitzhak is now having a revival in Israel. They're putting out popular editions of it. They have not come to the level, that, as far as I'm aware today, that they're putting out popular uh, versions of the Malmada Talmidim. But if you're interested in this whole Mahalik and you go online in the Hebrew books, you look up the Malmada Talmidim and you go by the Parsha of the Week, Vayera of Chaisar, whatever it is, because he's gone on every Parsha, uh, you might find it, it reminds me a little bit of the Akedis Yitzhak. You might find uh, a Vart that you like, sometimes you like a lot, simply because. The desire to to take the 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 Musser, you might say, of the biblical story, um, even though it's written a thousand years ago in the old kind of jargon, um, and have it more than just. I mean, we all know the story of Yosef and his brothers. We know that already. So, what do we take out of that? We all know the story of Yosef, Yaakov, and Moshe, and Aaron, and all the rest. We know that. But what do we take out of it? We know the rules of Tum and Tahira, but what do we take out of that? So, one of the places you can go to. Uh, to see a certain type of spin, which will always be the rationalistic, allegorical one, uh, is the Sefer Marmala Talmidim. Uh, you know, it, it, some will like it, some will not like it. 
but it, but uh, but it's, at the end, but it's not an unfirm thing at all. His intention was to try to take the Torah and, and make it something you think about. So that I think is already interesting today. Uh, I conclude with the famous story I've said many times from Yaakov Kamenetsky, where um, he how did I hear it? He was in a you know when he came here he first was in Canada and Toronto, and it's in the 1930s, and he was in a JCC. And he saw a guy with a small talus and talus cotton, and you know, small talus cotton. He said, "What's that all about?" And the guy said, "You know, Rabbi, I came from Poland or wherever, and my old man told me, I don't know what you're going to do when you come to America, come to Canada, but promise me, you always wear one of these." So, you know, I'm still wearing the thing to show my honor to my father. And Riyakam Nefsi said, "Your father didn't mean to wear the original one when you were five years old. He meant that you should always wear a talus cotton, but get a bigger one when you grow older." And then Ryaka went on to say that for so many people, when you read the Parsha of the Week or something like that, you're still, the old Talos Khan, you're still thinking of it in terms like you did in the 5th, 6th grade, 7th grade. You don't think of it in an adult fashion. You understand? Now, it doesn't mean in an unfrom way, and the Ryaka Kamenetsky didn't mean that, but it meant you don't think of it in a simplistic way, the way you do when you're a child. Uh, Adrabo, the, 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 the Parsha of the Week, which is always there every week, is there to stimulate you to think of it in an adult fashion. Maybe you'll get it right. Maybe you won't get it right. Okay. But at least you give it a, you know, you, you, you try it. This is, this is called Amelis. It's one fashion, excuse me, one facet of Amelis Batora. It's not the only one, but it's one of the facets of the Amelis Batora. So uh, that's who uh, Yaakov, Anatoly, Yaakov and Shumshan Anatoly was in the, in the Sefer Marmel Tominum. And I want to thank once again the Glucks who really stepped up you know, because I don't, I don't have anybody this week yet for the uh, parsha and for the uh, haftorah. I hope we'll get uh, someone, uh, but I do thank them for sponsoring the bio. And with that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david